Hello and welcome to episode 40 in the CMS Pension Lawcast series. Today we're looking at some of the issues that arise in connection with pension sharing on divorce, including discussing the information that trustees can or should provide, how to deal with a change in the underlying scheme benefits, communications and language, and finally a section on what you may want to ask or tell a family lawyer. I'm Jenny Bell, a partner in the pensions team, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Emma Nash, a partner and head of the family department at Fletcher Day, and by CMS senior associate Simon Evans. Pension sharing on divorce has been around for some time, having been introduced in December 2000 by the Welfare Reform and Pensions Act 1999. It aims to facilitate a more clean break approach to pensions than the previous earmarking provisions brought in by the Pensions Act 1995. This is because the earmarking provisions create an income stream for the ex-spouse that's dependent on a member's pension entitlement, whereas the pension sharing provisions create a freestanding entitlement for the ex-spouse. Despite over 20 years on the statute books, trustees, members and ex-spousers still encounter issues with the practical application of pension sharing and the implementation of court orders. I'll now hand over to Simon and Emma for their thoughts on the information that's provided to the court in divorce cases. Thank you, Jenny. The legislation for pension sharing orders is based on using cash equivalents, something we should all be familiar with. One issue we've seen, though, is that a pension sharing order is made that is not appropriate to the circumstances of a particular scheme. This is usually where there is a complex benefit structure. Emma, beyond a request to provide CETV, what kind of information should trustees be providing when asked? Well, if we've got a pension sharing order that has been made uh, and it was inappropriate to to be made or can't be implemented, we're looking at either a situation where there was inadequate information available to either during negotiations or during uh, court proceedings, or there's just been an oversimplistic approach to how those pensions were dealt with uh, in making the final order on the divorce. I think at this point I've got to mention two forms. The first is a Form E, which is the financial statement that the parties are required to fill out within court proceedings, but it's actually used a lot on a voluntary basis uh, during negotiations because we're, as solicitors, quite keen to keep people out of court if we can. And the second form is the Form P, which is the pension inquiry form, which is the form that should be sent out to the pension providers, um, either at the start of uh, proceedings or, or during negotiations. And that form contains uh, questions uh, including uh, whether there are any rights which are not uh, going to be shareable um, and information about any costs of implementing uh, a pension sharing order. And the problem is, and this is identified in the uh, Pension Advisory Group's report in 2019, best practice is to send out that form P to the pension provider as soon as possible, but it's simply ignored by both practitioners and the court. So what we what we really need to do is we need that information. So I would say if you're being asked for evaluation and you are aware that it's in the context of a divorce, you should be providing the information in the form P even if you haven't been provided with it. The problem will be if you don't if you're not aware that there are divorce proceedings and you're simply being asked for evaluation. I think we need to work on working better alongside uh, other professionals to make sure that we are aware of uh, of the lack of information that we may have uh, in those circumstances. Thanks, Emma. Um, 
I mean, one difficulty I faced was with a scheme with a type of AVCs that were designed to be used to fund a pension commencement lump sum and um, were never intended to be used for a pension in their own right. The court order gave the spouse all of the members main pension, leaving the member with 100% of the AVCs. We then had to advise how to administer AVC only benefits, where there was, for example, no rule about how the AVCs even come into payments on their own. And under the rules, they ended up being entitled to very generous fixed annuitization factors that created a funding strain for the scheme. This issue, of course, has in fact started arising more widely now, given that DB benefits can be transferred separately from DC benefits. Um, but Form P asks for a copy of the scheme booklet. This is kind of technical issue that wouldn't be in the scheme booklet. Um, but is there scope for trustees to include extra explanations or comments about something the court should be aware of when making a pension sharing order? Absolutely. I think you have to look at the form piece being the minimum requirement. Um, it may even be better and you can provide this information in your own standard form. You don't have to use the form uh, P to respond. But I think you, if you look at it from the perspective of providing all the relevant information and then cross check it against the form P to make sure you've complied with the minimum requirements. And if there are any technical issues such as that, or if there are any um, issues uh, that would arise on the implementation of a pension sharing order, you need to make that front and centre so that the information doesn't get overlooked. Thanks, Simon and Emma. I'm now going to look briefly at the situation where the benefits that were the subject of a pension sharing order later change. And what steps should the trustees take? This has become a practical issue for trustees as a result of GMP equalisation, which of course is something for a, of a hot topic for any defined benefit pension schemes that hold guaranteed minimum pensions, we refer to them as GMPs, as a result of contracting out of the state earnings related pension. And questions arise for trustees who have implemented pension shares that include GMP that's accrued between 1990 and 1997. So looking first at scheme members who are subject to a pension debit, so where their entitlement is now a specified percentage of their original benefit. Future benefits or transfer values for that member should be calculated to include an allowance for equalisation on, on a basis that's consistent with the approach adopted for equalisation for other scheme members. And then the percentage share should be applied to the new corrected level of benefits. For transferred out ex-spouses, it's likely that the trustees will not have properly calculated the pension credit because it was based on an unequalised cash equivalent transfer value. And so the trustees remain liable to make good past underpayments. This is because if the pension credit was incorrectly calculated, then the trustees won't have, have conferred appropriate rights under the legislation and so won't be getting a statutory discharge. What's less clear is how proactive the trustees need to be in these circumstances. In most cases, the ex-spouse will not have been a scheme member. So it's easier to argue that the nature of the relationship between the trustees and the ex-spouse is not a fiduciary one. However, the trustees still have duties to both the court and the parties to correctly implement the pension sharing order and a duty to discharge trust assets in accordance with that order. As a minimum, we'd suggest that trustees should recalculate the pension credit on the new equalised basis and then consider what steps are proportionate to make any top-up payment to the ex-spouse. And of course, for future calculations, 
cash equivalent transfer value figures should be prepared on an equalised basis. The trustees adopting the same approach that they apply to calculate equalised transfer values generally. And the calculation of the future pension credits and pension debits should also be based on an equalised benefit so that the problem doesn't persist going forward. I'll now hand back to Simon and Emma again. Thank you, Jenny. Um, now we'd like to move on to communication and language. Pensions is an area with often very technical language. Any scheme booklet or newsletter will often have an extended glossary. But the people we communicate with cover the whole spectrum of society, and we are trying to help them make life changing decisions. There have been projects from time to time to address the kind of language we use. Connected with auto enrolment, we had the Nest Phrasebook in 2011 and the DWP Pensions Language Guide in 2011, which was updated in 2014. The most recent was probably the Association of British Insurers Guide in 2016 about communicating retirement options in light of the new DC flexibilities. Emma, I know you've set up the Family Law Language Project because you face very similar issues in your field. Are there some key principles that we should think about in how we approach the language we use? Thank you, Simon. Yes, so the Family Law Language Project uh, is designed to help make uh, family law more accessible um, and reduce conflict through the improved use of language. And I think when you are dealing with very technical language, uh, it's uh, there are a few things that you can remember. So you've got to remember your audience. I think if we're talking to other professionals a lot, we tend to use our technical language more. And it's about remembering to sort of switch that off when you're not talking to someone who will be familiar with that kind of language. And I think we also need to make sure we build the right kind of relationships with our with our clients so that we can so that they feel comfortable to say, hang on a second, I don't understand that. I think we've all been in a room where we've kind of not understood something and but we've been a bit afraid to put our hand up and say, hang on a second, what's that? Because we don't want to sound silly. Um, and I think we just need to make sure we've got those kind of relationships because there there will be things that people struggle to understand and they need to be able to speak about it. I would also say don't be afraid of providing a slightly longer explanation for something. If we uh, prioritise brevity over providing proper information, then we might make something even less understandable, particularly if you're using a lot of acronyms. Um, I, I think the key to that would be finding a sort of user-friendly way to do that, um, which can be a bit tricky. And then finally, I would say uh, remember uh, the wider use of language, particularly if you're dealing with people who are going through a divorce. For example, they may not want to be referred to as Mrs. anymore, or if you're looking at circumstances where the divorce has already ended and you're still referring to them as husband or wife, again, that may cause issues for them. So just sort of be aware of those sort of things. Thank you for that. On that last point, I think one example we see in the pension sphere would be picking up on sensitivity in death cases. Um, so when we write out to family members, we might refer to the deceased member as Mr X or Mrs X rather than as the member, even though that's how we may refer to them in internal communications. With the introduction of pensions dashboards, there is some hope that we will have greater member engagement and people taking more interest in their pension. A key point will be making sure that members are not immediately put off by intimidating language. One point to bear in mind, and lawyers are often very guilty of this, is that not everything needs to be described to a member using its technical name or even worse, an acronym. And, and I think that's one of the points that Emma has made. And if we do need to be including full detail, which often we do need to do, maybe we need to put this at the back. The main communication is then focused on getting the point over to a member in a way that they're not immediately put off reading it. 
The final section we want to cover today is if there is anything we'd want to ask or tell a family lawyer, no personal questions here. Um, a key point for us and our clients as, as pensions lawyers is probably understanding the overall divorce process. This can be relevant in wider circumstances than pension sharing, for example, when administering spouse pensions or deciding who gets a lump sum death benefit. So starting question would be, at what point does somebody cease to be a legal spouse? Is there any process that still carries on after that? Right. So we're actually in a bit of a transition uh, place at the moment. So I'm going to have to use two sets of languages because uh, the law changed in April when we had the Divorce uh, Dissolution and Separation Act come into force. So it, the, the old law and the new law still require two, uh, what used to be a decree and there's now an order uh, to end the marriage. Used to be decree nisi and then followed by decree absolute. And now we have conditional orders and final orders. And a party will cease to be the legal spouse on the making of either the decree absolute or the final order. And from that day, they will cease to have any legal entitlement as a spouse, whether that's under a, a pension scheme or, or a trust. Uh, so so that, that that's the, the key date. This is one of the reasons why it can be so important to get the finances settled and approved in a court order before the marriage is formally ended. The family court cannot make financial orders if one party has passed away. And if an ex-spouse were to pass away after the marriage was ended, but before a financial order was made, then the other ex-spouse would not be entitled to apply for any of the um, orders under the Matrimonial Causes Act. So they wouldn't be able to get a pension order. Um, so their only entitlement would then be to uh, make a claim under the Inheritance Act uh, 1984. And there may be restrictions on what they can claim and that wouldn't be available to them unless they were domiciled in this country. So it's really important to get the timing right when we're making uh, pension orders and when we're actually formally ending the marriage. So and then when we are asked for pensions information, what stage of the divorce proceedings are then? Well, the answer to that is as soon as possible. Uh, remember, we would much rather settle everything without having to go through court proceedings. So ideally, we agree everything and it then gets submitted to the court for approval. So as soon as that process is even being contemplated, uh, we need that information. Um, again, it, that falls on, on us really to make sure that we're asking and reaching out for that information and that the context that it's being asked for in, in because there is a, a divorce um, and ma making you aware of that so that so that you're providing the right information. Um, so it's as, as soon as possible, really. Thank you. I think one thing a pensions lawyer would say to family lawyers is it's very important to make sure the court gets the details right. These are court orders, so we and trustees don't have much flexibility in how schemes respond to them. We've held trustees where the court order even had the name of the scheme wrong, raising the question whether in fact it bound our client. Some schemes also have problems where, a lack, where they have a lack of engagement from the ex-spouse or where they require costs to be paid before they can implement and they haven't been paid. And this prevents the trustees being able to implement the pension sharing order. This leaves trustees with an outstanding order hanging over them, which is not ideal at the best of times and can be problematic as a scheme approaches wind, winding up and it wants certainty and finality. What scope is there for pension scheme trustees to ask for changes to a pension sharing order after it's been made? OK, well, this can be um, a bit tricky and it really does highlight the importance of having that information available and correct 
um, before those those orders are made, before they're drafted. Uh, and in fact, we can um, uh, get the pension provider invo involved in the orders to make sure that the wording is correct. So you can say, hey, that's the wrong name of the name of the scheme. Um, and also to put undertakings in the order to make sure the parties know what their responsibilities are in terms of providing documentation, information and paying costs. And so that that's something that's in the order that's enforceable as well. Um, in theory, you can make an application to um, vary a pension sharing order, and that would usually be by one of the parties involved. You can intervene in proceedings as a third party, but you'd need permission of the court to do that. I think if you have exhausted absolutely every possible means of trying to implement something, um, the court will want to uh, do something to ensure that uh, the, the, the overall results, the clean break, can be achieved. And as I said, the, the courts have got quite a wide discretion when it comes to variation applications on pension sharing orders. Thank you. I think I think in this kind of case, if it's one where you might be contemplating the, mem the withdrawing the pension share, the member themselves has got a financial interest in that. So they might well be willing to bring the application and bear the cost rather than trustees having to do so. Well, they'll have an interest in getting either the pension share sorted um, or if there really is no way of implementing implementing and that the reasons for that fall on the other party, then um, yes, it may simply be that in order to achieve that clean break, that is no longer possible. Um, and so, yes, there could be a, a benefit to them doing that. Well, thank you very much, Emma and Simon. I think one of the main takeaways for trustees that resonated with me is the importance of ensuring that all necessary scheme information has been given to the family lawyers so that the court makes an order that the trustees can implement. This can probably be done quite efficiently with a standard set of notes that can be sent out as soon as the trustees are aware of the possibility of divorce proceedings. I hope you found our session interesting and special thanks to Emma for taking time today to share her expertise with us. Episode 41 in the CMS Pension Lawcast series will be released at the end of July and looks at ESG and investment duties. We hope you can join us then. Thank you. <laughs>